We're in the second part of a five-week series called Five Easy Ways to Wreck Your Life. And, and so we're looking at this idea of this guy named Solomon who was rich, who was powerful, who was handsome, who was a king. And, 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 and he, 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 he's looking back on the end of his life thinking through, reflecting on the mistakes that he made, all the, all the wrong turns that he made, all, the, all the, the bad places where he left himself and his family and things like that. This book is, is Ecclesiastes. It's a journal that he wrote down, and it's a gift to us from God so that we, we can kind of learn what it means to pursue life. And his pursuit was, i got to find out the, the purpose and point of life. I want satisfaction. And so he tried all these things, and all these things were square pegs in a round hole. He chased this purpose of what's the million-dollar question, what's the meaning of life, and, and at the end of it, he realizes that it's not any of the things that he'd been pursuing. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 17 through 23, and in this series, just so you know, it's five weeks, it ends on November 6th, and we're going to end with a celebration weekend called Baptism. And so for those of you who've been wrestling with baptism, you've been wrestling with, with making your faith your own, going public with it, we would encourage you, we'd love for you to be a part of that. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus or just being baptized, what that means, we would love to talk with you, answer any questions that you have, and uh, celebrate with you on the 6th. And maybe it's you, or maybe it's uh, somebody that you've been bringing, or maybe it's even the kids that you have who've been kind of wrestling through some of this stuff. If that's them, we would love to just talk with them and make sure that they know everything that they need to know and make sure that they have everything that they'll need to bring that day. It's going to be an awesome celebration at the end of this series. And so I want to start out by talking about this idea of success. And so we've all seen success. Some of us have been successful. Some of us have done successful things. Uh, And I want to start out by just asking you to think through some characteristics of successful people, okay? I mean, just think about successful people in your life, successful people that you've seen, seen on TV, powerful people. What are some of the traits that they have, all right? Just think about that for about five, 10 seconds, all right? Now your mind's kind of there. Maybe for you, you think of the words passion, or they're focused, or they're driven, and they, they're up earlier than everybody else, and they're in bed later than everybody else, they're visionary, they're good time managers, they're, they're committed to excellence, they want the best, they're driven to achieve it at all costs, they're inspiring, they have endurance, they have perseverance, it's not just how many times they get knocked down, but it's, 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 it's the fact that they got up and they said, no, 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 we're not done here. We're going to keep moving forward. It made me think about uh, just recently the Olympics that we had in Rio. And I'm, I'm not big on gymnastics. I, I may be able to pull off a cartwheel if you want me to. No, I won't do that. But in this, as you think about gymnasts, I mean, it's all about precision, timing, all of this stuff. And as you think about the balance beam, you think about some of our gymnasts that were just there and the gold medals that they got. Think about the times that these gymnasts, these gymnasts practiced on a balance beam, or on uh, an uneven bar, or on a horse, or they run into this and hits this, this thing and then they do this flip, all the times that they fell in a dismount. I mean, it's not enough that they're, they're just pursuing this idea of a perfect score, but it's this idea that, you know what, they're trying to hit the mark, hit the target, and, and get up even when they fall. That's leadership. It's this idea that, you know what, we're going to make mistakes. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna face plenty at times. We're going to make mistakes. But it's, it's the leaders who get back up and go, no, 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 this is not going to define me. We're going to move forward together. There's some incredible traits when it comes to truly successful people. And as you might imagine, being successful or chasing success or doing your best or working hard are all God-given traits that he's given us. He wants us to work hard and do our very best. God hardwired us for that and even blesses us when we do our best and we work hard. He, 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 he puts himself around us and gives us his favor. But as you know, there's a shadow side to drivenness. There's a, there, there's a double-edged sword to this idea that we can chase success for so far 
so long, and it can impact us and impact those around us. I mean, just think about some of these things. You can be so driven to an extremely, uh, an unhealthy extreme, and you know what? It can impact people around you. Some of the most successful people at times can be so focused that they're blinded to everything else around them. They're blinded to, to wisdom and advice from other people. They don't see it. They're just, this is what we're after. We're lock, stock, and barrel. We're not changing anything, and they just keep pursuing something to their own detriment. You've seen successful people sometimes be some of the most insecure people, threatened by the talents of other people's success, always looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're doing okay, and they don't ever trust other people. They can be disloyal in a moment. They can immediately, in an instant, throw someone else under the bus if it makes them look better. They can be narcissistic, where they just believe the world revolves around them. They can be terrible time managers. I mean, they can spend so long, work so hard, be out so late, and and miss out on the most important things, be workaholics. They can carry unreasonably high stress, be distant from people, battle loneliness, and struggle with sleep and never take good care of themselves because they're always chasing this metaphorical number known as success or dollars or whatever that is. They can be approval-seeking people that are constantly searching, striving to, to hear the applause of, of their employer, or their peers, or, or maybe even their mom or their dad. Maybe they were, they were told something when they were a kid from a teacher or a coach that they would never amount to something. And it's this all-out pursuit to say, I'm going to show you that I'm enough. Successful leaders can miss the most important things too, right? It's right in front of them. They go home every day and they just miss the most important things. They're disengaged, they're distant, they're exhausted. They don't know how to do friendships or marriage or, or, or parent their kids. They don't know how to play. They don't know how to shut it down. They're always thinking about the next thing, the next hill to climb, the next dragon to slay. And then they blink and it's been decades and they realize that the end of it that none of it mattered. Solomon's story. The Bible tells us, hey, listen, we have this enemy that, that can distort anything good, anything good. And if we're not careful, he can move it to the most important thing in our lives, the center of our lives, as Dan was talking about with pleasure. That's what he did with pleasure, and now Solomon's doing this with success. It, it, he, he can distort it, make the most important thing, and then wreck us from a very good thing. The enemy does this all the time. The enemy will use anything. He can use food or drink or work or discipline or making money or working out or the internet. He can make material possessions, our kids, our hobbies, our happiness. These can all be things that are really good things, but if they become the most important thing, it can impact us. It can be great things, but when they're not the most important thing, they become destructive things. Jesus, when Jesus was baptized, he went into the the wilderness and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. He hadn't eaten at all. All of a sudden, the enemy of Satan comes in and he begins to tempt Jesus. What does he tempt him with? He tempts him with scripture. He actually distorts the Bible. And so if the enemy can take the Bible and distort it to to try to get Jesus to sin, he will take good things in our lives to distort them, to make them higher than what they should be and move us to a bad place where it destroys our lives. I have a friend of mine named Scott Nickel. We work together. He's now at a church in Colorado, but he says this all the time. This is in your notes. If you got your outline, go ahead and grab it. It says this, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately it becomes a destructive thing. When a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, ultimately it becomes a destructive thing. And just fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be your sports team. It could be your discipline to to do something in a certain way. Anything other than Jesus, when it is in that ultimate place, ultimately that thing will become a destructive thing. And during this series, we've been looking at Solomon's life. 
We're looking at a guy who is after it. I mean, he has got everything. People adore him. Kings want to be like him. People want to be near him. And he's looking at the shadow side of the success thing and realizing that, you know what? I chased something that didn't matter. I went after something. I climbed hill after hill after hill, and I slayed dragon after dragon after dragon. And at the end of it, it doesn't really even matter. We're talking about a Forbes cover guy. We're talking about the, the, the original most interesting man in the world. A guy who in the eyes of the world had it all. I mean, he had everything. He is the king of all kings. He is, he is more powerful. He's more wise. He's more famous. He's more handsome. Everybody wanted to be near him. And everybody wanted to be like him except Solomon. Solomon says, no, 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 emphatically, you don't want to go down this road. Don't chase the things that I chase. Don't try to become me. I missed it. We saw last week that, that Solomon chased all these, all these unbridled pleasures in an effort to fulfill him, to satisfy him. And, and basically at the end of it, he said, it's meaningless. It's a square peg in a round hole. You learn that Solomon said this word, habel. It's a Hebrew word. He says it 38 times throughout this book, these 12 chapters. It just means this. It's a vapor. It's dust in the wind. It doesn't matter. It's futile. It's like chasing after the wind. Solomon was a guy who started out well. He was blessed by God empowered by God, had much potential, much promise. And then he chased success, and success became his God. And so we'll pick up where we left off last week. If you got your, your notes, it's in your notes. If you got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 2, 17 through 23. Here's what he says. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, the word habel, like chasing after the wind. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, and I, I must leave, for I must leave to others everything that I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish, yet they will control everything I've gained by my skill and my hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then they leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and, all, and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Anybody else believe that? Say amen, you know? You work all your life, Solomon's saying. You can, you, can do, you can chase all these things. You can be so after. You can get after. You can do all these things. And at the end of it, guess what? You die. You know what else happens? Everything that you built to acquire this kingdom that you gave, that you made and you gave all of your life for, is given then to somebody else. And the reality is, you know what? You don't know how well they're going to take care of it or steward it, whether they're going to appreciate it or not, or whether they're going to leverage it for good or not. That's the reality in Solomon's life. Solomon had two boys, had a poor relationship with both of them. And, he, and somehow I think he's, he's, he's writing and he understands that, you know what? This relationship with his boys hasn't been good. I mean, they grew up having everything. Can you imagine the king's sons not having to work, not having to do anything, and they grew up with a dad who, who just chased all of these things and wasn't around, wasn't available, didn't have godly character, didn't invest in the way that, that, that they needed. Somehow I think he knows how this is going to end. And actually, if you read in 1 Kings, it says that these two boys ended up tearing up the kingdom of Israel. It falls apart. You can hear the regret in his words that he's writing, almost like he knows how this movie is going to play out. 
So here's the reality. You can, you can put the best energy towards your work, and you know what? You should. If you have a job, it's a gift. You know this. Not everybody has work, and, and God tells us, hey, listen, if you don't work, you don't eat. You should take care. You should work hard. You should do your best. But in this, if, if work ever becomes the most important thing, it's detrimental. It's destructive. It can leave you in a bad place. If, if, if all of a sudden what we do becomes who we are, our identity gets wrapped up in performance or our title or whatever, we're going to be in a bad place. And there is going to be destruction, not just in your life, but in those around you. So today, we're going to look at some of these things. If you got your notes, go ahead and look at this next, fill in this next blank. Here's, here's where destruction happens, when we allow success and performance to define us. When we allow success and performance to define us. It, it's, it's, it's no longer, it's not just what we do, but how well we do it at, at, at what we do. And then that becomes who we are. It becomes our identity. It's a recipe for wrecking your life. And that was Solomon's deal. It's what he chased. He tried pleasure. He tried all those things. And he went, you know what? I'm going to try to work this out. I'm going to work for this and see if this is going to be fulfilling. His identity was no longer a man chosen and blessed and radically loved by God. He was no longer humble and dependent and, 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 and dependent on God's strength and God's wisdom. He just chased it himself. He was a king. He was the man. He was strong, rich, powerful, handsome, admired, and he let success become his identity. What he did became who he was. And you know this, especially guys, when guys are having conversations, once we get to know each other, we're just talking, how's it going? Good. Where do you live? Good. What's going on? How many kids do you have? Eventually, we get to this question. Hey, what do you do? What do you do? And so we, we then answer the question by what we do. But what's interesting is that eventually, if we're not careful, especially if we do this really well, if we're good at what we do, then it becomes who we are, right? It becomes who we are. I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm a, I, I, I do this, or I, I'm, I have this position at work, or I'm, I'm up here. I oversee a big region of people. We, we do this. So I, I've climbed the ladder, and all of a sudden, it becomes, it becomes who we are. Not what we do, but who we are. And let me tell you, that's a slippery slope. You know this. You get fired, you get let go, you retire. You see this in sports all the time. All these athletes that have done really, really well, and then they, they retire. They don't know what their life is anymore because they were so tied. Who they were was all about what they did. Solomon's saying it's a destructive road. Saying it will not get you to a good place. It, it, what you do cannot define who you are because it will never, ever, ever satisfy. It's a bell. It's meaningless. The performance-driven life starts when we're little. It starts with parents, well-intended parents, who, who begin to affirm their kids because of good activity or, or good manners or good grades. Listen, I do this at home as well. And so we got to be really careful about how we invest in our kids' lives. We want to affirm the right things. And again, we, we need to put them in check when there are things that, that are out of value. But what happens in a kid's mind sometimes is that all of a sudden, my approval, my love comes from how good I do. And you know this, we all have people in our lives, we've been to the ballpark plenty of times where we have parents who like up the ante on expectations where, listen, you, you will get approval if you succeed, if you win, if you score, if you're the best, if your grades are good, all A's, weighted GPA, best scores on ACT and SAT, starting position, on and on and on. And kids, they get jacked up. Some of you are in the room, you grew up with a father like that or a mother like that, and, and you chased all these things in an effort to hear your mom or dad say, proud of you, thumbs up. But it leaves you in a bad place. 
Because you're always striving, you're always on, you're always performing, you're always trying to climb the next hill because you don't know, because it's shaky ground. Approval is shaky ground. Paranoid about whether or not you're loved. And here's the deal. Here's what's crazy. This this begins to muddle its way into our relationship with God. We begin to wonder question because we got people in our lives that care about us that love us and say you know what great things about us when we succeed and they say bad things about us when we don't do well um, we start thinking maybe God's that way can I just can I just walk through some things today to to reaffirm that that's not the case in your notes there's some, some passages I just want us to read together first John four ten says this this is real love not that we love God Okay, stop there for a second. Not that you love God, not that you did anything for God, not that, hey, you came to church and now he loves you, not that, hey, you started your 2020 time now, God really, really loves you, or, hey, I started serving somewhere in every ministry, I got into a life group, or I went to this unbreakable thing, I didn't want to go, my wife talked me into it, now God loves me so much, whatever that is. Not, not that we love God, but, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Listen, look at me. Your performance has nothing to do with God's love for you. Nothing. It's not conditional based on what you do or don't do. God just loves you. He sent his son for you. It's not conditional. Paul makes it even more clear in Romans 8, 31 through 34. He says, he says what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? That's a big statement. I'll get back to that. Who dare accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. See those questions? So who condemns us? Is God? No. Who accuses us? Well, besides the enemy. Who has the right to accuse us? God. Does he? No. And I love verse 32. It says this. It says, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Now, I've said this before. And I'll I'll just say this again. I have three kids. I have one that's 14. I have one that's four and a half and one that's four. All girls. And let me just tell you, I love you and I love people in the world. I I, I really do. I I love a lot of people. But I I would not give one of my kids for anybody. For all the people on the world, on the planet. Aren't you glad I'm not God, right? I mean, that's just the reality. But here's the deal. If you're a parent, you know. You know that too. But if I did, and I, Emmy, Everly, Avery, if God said, hey, listen, I got, you got you to you lay down one for, for the sake of the world. And somehow, and I don't know how, I got around to that. And they became the atoning sacrifice for you, and you came up to me and you asked me for something. It was for your benefit. And I gave my own child for you. Why wouldn't I say yes? What Paul's saying about God. God gave his only. He had one. He gave his only for all of us. If we need something, he's available. He's a good, good father that cares about us. 
That's how deep his love is for us. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to strive to secure it. God loves us, period. He puts a big exclamation point on it here, Romans 8, 38 through 39. And I am convinced that nothing, underline this, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for us has nothing to do with conditions. God loves you and I in spite of us, and nothing can separate us from his love. Augustine said this, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us, which means if there was only one of us, God would say, hey, Jesus, I want you to go and die for them. That's how much he cares about you and me. Rick Warren says, God is love. He didn't need us, but he wanted us, and that's the most important thing about us. God's love changes, transforms our identities. He tells us who we are. He tells us why we matter and what we're worth. You are loved. You don't have to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You are valuable just the way you are. God's not looking for some like bigger version, some better version of you one day to love. He loves you right now, where you are, wherever that is. You are worth the death of God's only, only son. Maybe, just maybe, we should all take a moment this week and examine why we do what we do. And hey, if you love your job, awesome. If you hate your job, awesome. If you're awesome at your job, awesome. If you're not that good at your job, awesome. But maybe we should evaluate our work and put it in its right place. This performance determine your self-worth. Solomon's saying, hey, listen, what you do and how well you do it cannot define you because if it is, it will never, ever, ever satisfy you. In your notes, we get consumed with success often because we fall into the comparison trap. Now, I know there's probably no one in here who's ever done a little comparison, right? We never looked around at somebody and went, oh, no, that looks good. I, wonder, I mean, there's probably nobody in here who's ever done that, so I should probably skip over this point. But there might be one person, all right, just maybe one person out there. So I'm going to walk through this point so that way we can make sure that we've got this figured out. But, but we start with performance, and then we begin to look around. We feel good about ourselves, and then we go, you know what? I am smart, but you know what? They're really smart. Or, you know what? She's really thin. I'm thin, but she's really thin. Or, you know what? I, we got a lot of stuff. We're doing really good. But you know what? I look over there, and they just, they're doing really, really good. And it moves from performance to comparison. And we get all wrapped up in things, and we start envying things, and we start doing image management. We start one-upping. We start trying to chase something that never, ever, 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 ever ends. You want to see image management go like to its nth degree, just go to your 10-year, 20-year, 25-year uh, class reunion. Anybody, anybody ever been to that? You know what I'm talking about? All right, some of you. You know, you know what it's like? Well, when you go, you see people, and they've worked hard. They've been like dieting for like six months knowing they're going to run in front of somebody for the first time they haven't seen in 25 years. Like it matters, right? And they're going to get less fat. That's the reality. And so, no, no, you're anyway, but, but in that, you're going to do all these things. I mean, I've heard of, of guys renting cars, renting suits, renting dates to go and be a part of this, all right? Well, there's a story about this woman who uh, goes to her 50th class reunion, all right? 
And, uh, and she goes into her class reunion, and she's the type, maybe you've been here, where when you look around at people your age, and you see people that you run into from high school, you go, man, I look a lot younger than they do, right? Has anybody ever, ever thought that way? You run into somebody that you know, and you go, man, it's not been good. High school, woo, post high school. Just me. Okay, yeah, that's awesome. Quit lying, all right? Would you? Let me see. Honestly, you go, okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, all right, very good. You're like, yeah, okay. I did, yeah. He's, he's sitting right over there anyway. But, but in this, there's this woman who's, who's done that. She walks into this, this ballroom, and she's looking around, and she's going, oh, my gosh, all these old people. This cannot be my class reunion. She sees this guy stand at the door, and she walks over to him. She says, hey, is this the class in 1956? He says, yes, it is. She goes, Wow. This must be my class. The man looks at her and goes, oh, really? What did you teach? (laughs) I would not have wanted to be that man. The comparison trap. It moves us to bad places. We either think that we're better than somebody, which leads us to pride, or we look at somebody and we realize that, you know what, they're doing better than we are, and it leads us to despair. It's, it's a moving target. It never, ever, ever stops. Look at what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4.4. He says this, Then I observed that most people are motivated to succeed because they envy their neighbors. This, too, is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. start to envy and we let it drive us we start living in this land that Andy Stanley calls it the land of Ur I'm successful but I want to be successful Ur I'm I'm rich I'm way better than my family growing up but I want to be rich Ur I'm I'm pretty I want to be pretty Ur I'm skinny but I want to be skinny Ur I'm strong I want to be stronger I'm cool I want to be cooler I'm smart I want to be smarter anybody ever been there when we start going down this road and we start looking around instead of looking up and recognizing who God is and what he's done and we start doing this comparison thing and it moves us to really really bad places it's meaningless the land of Ur is always a moving target because guess what the land of Ur has a land of est right? The richest, the prettiest, the strongest. Never ends. Solomon says this, Ecclesiastes 2, 22 and 23, so what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless saying, hey, listen, when what you do becomes who you are and when, you, when who you are consumes you, your quest for success consumes you, your stress level goes through the roof, you can't sleep, you're popping tums, you get sick a lot, you're tired all the time, you get irritable all the time, and you're no fun to be around. You're always looking over your shoulder or over your neighbor's fence to see what they have so that you need to get something so that you can be better than them in an effort to win. It's a dead-end street, and it's a lonely street. Here's the reality. Those type of people, you know this. They're not fun to be around. They're difficult to work with. I don't want to be one of those people. So what's the takeaway for us today? You mean we're not supposed to chase things and pursue things and work hard? No, it's not that at all. We should do our best. We should work hard and we should give God our best. Whatever we do, whatever the position, wherever we are in the organizational chart, whatever we do, we should, we should whether it's school or work or whatever, we should give our all and do our best. But in this not make it the center of our lives. 
It's not who you are. Your grades, students, your GPA, your resume of all the things that you're involved in, it's not who you are. It's what you do. Whether your team's awesome this year or not awesome this year, it's not who you are. It's what you do. Your jobs, sales are awesome or everything is up and to the right, awesome. It's not who you are. Your job title is like way up here or if it's way down here, it's not who you are. It's just what you do. God tells us who we are. He walks through our identity in him and and here's the reality. If we can get this right, things could really, really look different for us. I want to right-size our identity. And then I want to walk through some biblical roles. And I'm just going to do it pretty fast, all right, for the sake of time. I'm not going to give you a lot of different verses. If you want some verses, I can give you some verses that kind of coalesce all this stuff. But here's the deal, right? Just you, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it and personalize it. Scott Hatfield for him, all right? You, you personalize it. Some of this won't be relevant for all of you, but it will at one point, And so hopefully this will make sense. But, but I want to right-size our identity, okay? And then the biblical roles that God told, calls us to play. Okay, so here it is. The first one is this. Scott Hatfield is a follower of Christ. Okay? And you can put your own thing in the blank. I'm a follower of Christ or I'm not a follower of Christ. Um, but I'm a follower of Christ, plain and simple. It's who I am. I've been invited into a relationship with God by his great love and by Jesus' great sacrifice. I have been adopted into God's family. I've been chosen by the creator of the universe. He chose me. He chose me out of my darkness, out of my pain out of my sin, to follow him. I am made in the image of God, which is a mago day. I'm made in God's image. I am loved with an unchanging, unending, irreversible, irrevocable love. I'm God's child, and God is my perfect heavenly father, and he is a good, good father. I am a member of God's church. I'm, a body, I'm part of the body. My standing with God is not determined by what good things I do, by the shortcomings or the many, many, many mistakes or sins that I commit. My standing is secure, not because of my success or failure in life, but because of the bloodstained cross and the tomb that was vacated three days later. I am forever free from condemnation, bound by a love that cannot be broken. I am anointed, sealed, and have God's spirit that lives in me. I am valued and loved beyond my comprehension, loved in spite of my broken past, and promised new life today and for eternity forever with God. That's who I am. That's who a lot of you are in this room. For those of you who kind of wrestle with God and wrestle with Jesus, let me just tell you, that's who God wants you to be. That's actually why you were created. That's actually the reason that Jesus came and died on a cross for you so that you could know true love, so that you could be identified as a son or a daughter of the one true God, the king of all kings. If God's been working on your heart, let his love into your life. I'm just telling you, there's no greater thing. All this pursuit for what satisfaction and purpose and meaning, it's all found right there in that statement. God loves you in spite of you. And he pursued you, knowing everything about you. That's how great his love for you. It's not conditional like the world. It's not conditional like your work. It's not conditional like your grades. It is only what it is. Jesus, his only, died for you. That's who I am. Christ follower, that's my identity. 
Here's the second title. It's not my identity. Don't get lost in this. I'm, I'm giving you some things in order. It's not my identity, okay? It's a title that I have, right? I am identified with this, but it is not my identity. I am a husband to Sarah Hatfield. I am her husband, and it is an honor to be her husband. I am blessed to be her husband. God put a high price, a high calling on my marriage, and I want it to be different, and it has been for 22 amazing years. He calls me to love her the way his son loves our church and loves the church and the way he loves you and me. He goes first. He serves first. He sacrifices first. Provides first. Protects first. My role is to grow in my love for her and my love for Jesus as we do this together, husbands and wives. This is your second title. It's not your identity, but it is your second title, okay? Third thing is this. I am Avery, Everly, and Amelia's dad. And there is no greater joy. God has an amazing sense of humor to give me three girls because I don't know, I didn't know what to do with girls. But God said, no, 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 we're going to wreck this guy and make him totally dependent on me because he knows no girls. Um, it, is, it is my joy to be their dad to parent them, to, to try to model for them, to laugh with them, to, to go to the playgrounds with them, to swim with them, to pray with them, to teach them, to, to, to encourage them, to tell them over and over and over again until my voice is hoarse how much I love them and how much God loves them and what he wants to do in their life. If they'll just partner with him, they'll become these dangerous women of God who will go wherever he wants them to go and, and say whatever it is that he wants them to say and do whatever it is he wants them to do. There are no other expectations for me, for them, other than that, to make their lives count for him. It is a joy to be their dad, but it is not my identity. Yes, I'm identified as their father, but it doesn't, it's not my identity. And then last, I'll just stop here today at this one. I am the pastor of Gateway Church. And I've gotten to do this for two years and change, and I love it. And it's an honor, and I'm blessed. What we've gotten to see, what I got a front row seat to get to see over the last two years has been so humbling, so amazing, I'm so grateful. But listen, look at me. It's what I do. It's not who I am. My identity is not wrapped up in numbers or dollars or how many baptisms or how many life groups or how many people come through these doors. It can't be. It, if, it, if it does, it moves me to really difficult places. Either I'm really, really awesome or I'm really, really not awesome based on you. And my identity cannot be based on you. And here's the deal. Here's the transformational principle. Neither can yours. So whatever it is that you do work-wise... I am, I work as a blank, whatever that is. I am a student. Put that in. But it, it doesn't depend on your identity based on your performance. It just doesn't. It's who you are. It's just, it, it's not who you are. It's just what you do. Whatever your title is, and listen, there's some good titles in this room. A lot of good titles. Teacher, counselor, principal, doctor, IT, sales, your student. It's not who you are. It's just what you do every day we could just figure that out our lives would be different these roles are functions of, of how we're to live out of our identity they're not our identity 
We're Christ follower first, and then a spouse, and then a parent, and then whatever it is that we do every day from 9 to 5, or whatever those numbers and whatever those days look like. And if we can live in that order, you guys, here's the key, okay? It's, it's not enough to know it. It's to do it in order. Because here's the reality. If you're really, really good at work and it becomes more important than your marriage, your marriage will suck and die. You can be a great father, and if being a father is the most important thing, then your marriage can suffer. You can work and work and work, and you know what? If you never spend time with God and you forget who your identity is in Him, then you know what? It, it, will, it will jack up everything in your life. Eugene Peterson is a guy who wrote the message. We use him a lot in messages, but yesterday he tweeted this out. This was so good. It was for me. It says this, if succeeding as a pastor means failing as a parent, you've already failed as a pastor. Does that make sense? We can reach everybody in Blue Springs and Lee Summit and, and Independence. We can go Grain Valley. We can go, we can go all over the world, and, and we can do all these things. But if I, if I miss my kids or I miss my marriage, I'm a sucky pastor, right? Right? Amen? Don't bless you. Don't miss it, all right? Don't miss the biggie on the eye chart. We got to put this in order and let God do what God does best. And when we do that, God is honored and He blesses us because we're living out of a true identity. This is the last blank. Failure is to succeed at something that doesn't really matter. What a definition for failure, right? It's to succeed at something that really doesn't matter. It doesn't have any lasting value. It's not going to be anything that that lands in in, in such a way for eternity. it's, It's to be really good at something that no one cares about in the end. Okay? It's chasing after something that will never last, never satisfy, never fulfill. And Solomon knows this all too well. And he's saying, listen, you're pursuing success. Put it in its rightful place. Because if it's the most important thing, a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing becomes ultimately a destructive thing, and it will destroy everything in its path. Listen, work hard, do your best, serve well, but that's not who you are. Who you are, you are a dearly loved son or daughter of the king. And some of you know that. Some of you, my prayer is that you'll come around to knowing that. Let me close with these questions for us today. These are just questions. What does it matter if you've, if you've got all this power, all this respect, you've got this corner office, and your marriage is a wreck. What does it matter if, if you do all these great things, but you don't really have a relationship with your kids? You don't know anything about them. You don't know what their lives are like. You don't know what they're into. You don't know what, what's, what's breaking their hearts right now. What does it matter if you've got all this stuff and you don't know them? What does it matter if you have all this money and all this stuff and you're empty and a shell of a person inside? Because here's the deal. Solomon's saying this. Hey, listen, chase this road. This is where it ends. You're a shell of a person that has a lot of regrets. And then as Jesus said... And I want to show you this passage, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Here's what he says. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? And the answer is no. So what does it matter if you gain the world? And lose your soul. 
Solomon saying it's a waste, it's habel. Jesus saying it's total loss. Let me close with David's words. David was Solomon's father, and Solomon missed out on these words, didn't apply them to his life. He says this in Psalm 39, 4 through 7. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. Verse 5, you have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is but a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? David said, my only hope is in you.